Hello and welcome to Podiatrics, Pediatric Podcasts. Today's topic is neutropenia in children. So the purposes of today's podcast is to talk to you about neutropenia, give you some way of understanding what it is that neutrophils do. And when you're confronted with a low neutrophil count in practice, to think about some of the things that could be going on. There is only one thing I want you to to take from today's podcast and we will talk about it later on and I'll let you know. So the first thing to say is that neutrophil production is as per your kind of hematopoiesis process in which you have a stem cell which quite inspirationally like us all can become anything it wants to be. So it can either be a common myeloid progenitor or a common lymphoid progenitor. Now, lymphoid one's relatively straightforward because your common lymphoid progenitor can either become a lymphocyte, be that T or B lymphocyte or a T or B cell or a natural killer cell. So that's quite straightforward. So if you ever get asked an exam question about what a T or a B cell or a natural killer cell are made of, their progenitor is a lymphoid progenitor because they produce lymphocytes, B lymphocytes, T lymphocytes, okay? Or a natural killer cell, which is a large granular lymphocyte. So a natural killer cell is a large granular lymphocyte. So even though it's called an NK cell or a natural killer cell, it's a lymphocyte and therefore produced from a lymphoid progenitor. The other common cell line is a myeloid progenitor. So you have a common myeloid progenitor and then you've got your megakaryocytes. Your megakaryocyte becomes your thrombocyte or your platelets. So exam questions about where thrombocytes form from immediately for megakaryocytes. You've then got erythrocytes and mast cells that don't differentiate any further. But the one that does is a myeloblast. And that myeloblast can produce monocytes that then will become your macrophages and your BEN, B-E-N. Basophils, azinophils and neutrophils. So we're going to talk about neutrophils today. So probably the first thing I'd like to say is just to get you interested in it is there's a lot of work now on why uh, being diabetic has an increased risk of things like sepsis and immune regulation. So often what's been talked about with not just um coronavirus but other back with bacterial infections is why is hypoglycemia a risk factor and there's been a lot of work over the past two three days that actually hypoglycemia affects your abilities of your neutrophils to migrate so what can actually happen with hypoglycemia is that your neutrophils will just uh, remain bound to the vascular wall and we know that for neutrophils to get where they need to be, they need to go into the bloodstream in the peripheral blood and through chemotaxis, which is an important process by which neutrophils get to where they need to be. So actually with hypoglycemia, we know that they love binding to the vascular wall, but not so good at migrating, not so good at locomotion. So that's when they move along the vessel wall. And pretty rubbish at actually phagocytosis, so engulfing the pathogen and producing secretory granules to break them down to phagocytosis. So that's a big problem. And this is why 
Um, we're looking more and more at why hyperglycemia impacts on neutrophil function. So what do we know about neutrophils? So they're produced in the bone marrow. About 5% will enter the circulation in normal conditions. And a proportion of these cells are located on the vascular wall, so just sit on the vascular wall, ready for a stimulus to peel off and get to where they need to be. And they have a lifespan of 5 to 10 days, which in, you know, in contrast to adult type haemoglobin, um, which has a lifespan of 120 days, we can see the recycling of neutrophils is a lot faster. So neutrophils, where could they be? So we have got a marginated neutrophil pool. So at any particular moment in time, day, night, Monday, Tuesday, Sunday, Saturday, some neutrophils are loosely bound to the vessel wall. And therefore, when you take a blood sample, you are not sampling these neutrophils. So we'll talk about why that's important later on. But some neutrophils are bound to the vessel wall. And when you stick a needle in and take a blood sample, you are sampling the centre of the lumen of the blood vessel. And therefore, you won't pick up neutrophils that are bound to the vessel wall. So that's quite important. Your circulating neutrophil pool are those that are moving, okay, moving with your red cells, etc. And these are sampled when you take a blood sample, okay? When you are stressed, your marginated neutrophil pool becomes your circulated pool. So that's why your neutrophil count goes up in terms of infections. If you had sepsis, uh, your neutrophil count mostly goes up. And if you have steroids or pancreatitis, pancreatitis isn't an infection, but they are systemic inflammatory responses, corticosteroids, cortisol, etc., will push um, these marginated neutrophils that are loosely bound to the vessel wall into your circulating pool. So that's why your neutrophil count will go up in those times. That's why it's an important differential diagnosis if your neutrophil count was to go up. But today we're focusing on why your neutrophil count may go down. So neutrophils, if you like, are moving around. So they might be in the blood moving around. And then what will tend to happen is there's lots of adhesive molecules and a lot of the problems with abnormalities and neutrophil counts can be traced back to problems with these molecules. So these molecules will help you adhere to the blood vessel wall. So what tends to happen is that you get a blood vessel, you've got a neutrophil, and then the neutrophil binds okay, to the vessel wall and then it will roll along the endothelium so it will bind, we call that adhesion. It will move, we call that crawling. And then we've got diapedesis. So diapedesis is when it will squeeze through um, your pericytes and your basement membrane and go into the tissue. So that's diapedesis. That's the normal thing that happens with neutrophils. What do we want from neutrophils? We want to produce enough of them, so quantity. We want to be able to transfer them to the peripheral circulation because in times of stress or infection, that's where we want them to be. And we want them to be able to kill microorganisms because that's their main function. So leukocytes are your most, you know, SBA question, the most predominant white cells. So if you took a sample of white cells, they are the, um, the most common ones. And that's actually reflected if you ever look at a full blood count when we look at um, neutrophils, lymphocytes, etc. Um, they are the most predominant ones that we we tend to see. Okay, of white cells.
let me sample. So neutrophil count wise, it changes by age, but broadly speaking, okay, if we take neonates out of the question, because you can get away with white cell counts up to sort of 21 in the first month or two of life, I would say usually for the vast proportion of children, we are looking for a neutrophil count above six, above a white cell count above six and a neutrophil count above 1.5, okay, one to 1.5. So clearly if it's lower than this, we start to get concerned. So if we have a neutrophil count between one and 1.5, we tend to call that mild neutropenia, 0.5 to 1, moderate, and if it's less than 0.5, we start to get into severe categories. The question is, are there patients with neutrophils less than 0.5 who've never had severe infections? And yes, there are. So it's not the neutrophil count that's the most important thing, but the storage in the bone marrow, okay, your reserve. So if you are neutropenic, the most, which we see in post-chemotherapy patients in the context of neutropenic sepsis often. So patients that have had chemotherapy, both paediatric and adults, can have neutropenic sepsis. And actually, a lot of the infections in neutropenic patients are endogenous flora, so normal bacteria that live in our bodies. How does our body react to neutropenia? So if you suddenly became neutropenic, we would increase our GCSF. So that is granulocyte. Remember, our granulocytes are basophils, azinophils, and neutrophils. Ben, we increase our GCSF. GCSF, what does it do? It matures neutrophil precursors and, second bit's important, transfers them to peripheral blood, which is where we want them to be. So neutropenia, again, these are general concepts. Don't try and commit them to memory, but instead, at the end of this podcast, reflect on how you may approach a patient with neutropenia. So the mechanisms I like to think about are decreased production. Does that make sense? If a count of anything is low in your blood, be that platelets, haemoglobin or white cell count, in this case, neutrophil count, we need to think about have they got decreased production? Are they not producing enough neutrophils? The second thing is, Neutrophils are produced in the bone marrow and need to get into the peripheral blood. So if you've got a problem with transfer of neutrophils from your bone marrow to your peripheral blood, you will be neutropenic. The third thing is increased margination. So margination is when neutrophils bind to the wall. And we remember when we stick a needle and take a blood sample, that needle goes into the middle or the lumen of the blood vessel. And therefore neutrophils that are marginated or bound to the margin of the blood vessel or the endothelium, they won't get sampled. So the neutrophil count will be low and increased destruction. So if much the same that if we have got hemolytic processes in the context of hemoglobin count, we break down red cells and our hemoglobin goes down. Okay, In the context of immune thrombocytopenia with platelets, we have 80% of patients with ITP have antibodies against their platelets. What happens is you label your platelets as foreign and you destruct them. Your platelet count goes down. Same mechanism in neutropenia. There's massive uh, parallels that you can draw with the other cell lines. 
we tend to say chronic neutropenia is anything greater than six months, okay? Because there are problems because with acute neutropenia, secondary to things like infection that we'll talk about, you can get a low neutrophil count for about a year, okay? So more than six months we would call chronic. So neutrophil counts, like lots of cells, when you measure someone's neutrophil count, you're measuring number of neutrophils they have. How do they get to neutrophils? Well, they start as, remember the hematopoiesis thing, they start off as a myeloblast, okay? Which is important because if you ever study your diagrams, myeloblasts are what basophils, eosinophils, neutrophils and monocytes that then become macrophages are all composed of. So you've got to start off with a myeloblast. So myeloblast can become basophil, an eosinophil, a neutrophil, or a monocyte that therefore becomes a macrophage. So we get a myeloblast, you become a promyelocyte next, then take the pro off, you become a myelocyte, okay? And then a metamyelocyte, then a band neutrophil, then a segmented neutrophil. And segmented means it's got different segments to it with the granules, okay? So generally speaking, the names are irrelevant, but as you progress along, the cell size generally decreases. So a segmented neutrophil, that is the last process, is much smaller than a myeloblast. The nuclear volume, so the volume of the nucleus, decreases as well. Okay, And your nuclear maturation goes from round fine chromatin to segmented dark chromatin. So a myeloblast will tend to be bigger. It will tend to have very fine chromatin and the chromatin itself will appear lighter and you can tell the difference on a film between a segmented neutrophil because a neutri segmented neutrophil will be smaller and you will have segmented so you might have three different blobs rather than it all looking like one thing three different blobs of very dark chromatin okay so it's very important so i'm going to talk we mainly would say to people that there is acquired neutropenia and there is congenital neutropenia and then there are two conditions that kind of stand out from the rest. So the most common cause of neutropenia in those under the age of four is something which is called chronic benign neutropenia. I should clarify that statement. It's the most common cause of neutropenia when you've ruled out infection. Infection is by far and away the most common thing, and it's the thing you need to think about first. So infection can make you neutropenic. So infection can cause your neutrophil count to go up. Infection can cause your neutrophil count to go down. So infection is a differential of neutrophil count being high, and it's, um, so we call that neutrophilia, and it's a differential for your neutrophil count going down to neutropenia. So chronic benign neutropenia is something that we can think about. So chronic benign neutropenia, again, it's chronic for more than six months. It's benign, so it often doesn't need any treatment. And it's neutropenia, so your neutrophil count tends to be low. If you get recurrent infections with this condition, you give them GCSE for granulite, granulocyte colony stimulating factor. So that stimulates you to produce more neutrophils and improves margination. Sorry, not margination, migration. So gets the neutrophils out of the bone marrow and into the peripheral blood. What we see if we do bone marrows in these patients often is they've got increased precursors. 
okay? So they might have loads of myeloblasts and promyelocytes, but they haven't got that many segmented neutrophils. So they've got loads of precursors, but there's a pause in the maturation process, okay? So don't remember the names, just remember the considerations, okay? This, is, this podcast isn't about remembering specifics, it's principles. So another thing is benign familial neutropenia. So this gives you a normal bone marrow and is inherited autosomal dominant. If you have got any problems about what autosomal dominant means, there, there is a podcast, if you go back further, that's done on autosomal dominant conditions. The thing to look about is examine the blood counts of family members. So if you suspect benign familial neutropenia, you need to look at other people in the family. Why might you suspect it? Ethnic groups, okay? So it's benign familial neutropenia. Some countries like the term benign ethnic neutropenia, B-E-N, that is the same mnemonic as we used to remember basophils, zinophils and neutrophils. So it's asymptomatic and it's common in those individuals of African, Arab, as well as Ethiopian descent, okay? So often you can be guided by that. The one thing I want you to remember today, because actually I think uh, benign familial neutropenia actually illustrates a number of the things that I want you to think about. So the mechanism by which this condition happens helps all of the principles I want you to remember today. So why do patients with benign familial neutropenia something that runs in family autosomal dominant, get this condition. Number one, these are theories, but I want you to remember them. They have a disturbance of your pro-inflammatory cytokines. What do cytokines do? Cytokines cause your neutrophils to go from the bone marrow to the peripheral blood. So if someone with uh, benign familial neutropenia has an infection, what happens? They have problems producing pro-inflammatory cytokines. The neutrophils stay in the bone marrow, they don't go into the peripheral blood. Their neutrophil count measured in their blood is low. Number two, they have problems with their stem cells, okay? So they have problems with expression of certain molecules on their stem cells that mean that they produce neutrophils with a greater tendency to go into the gut, the spleen and the skin and don't like going into the peripheral blood. So they have got neutrophils that are phobic, okay, to coin a term, and they don't like going into peripheral blood, okay? So they'd rather reside in the gut, the spleen and the skin, hence the neutropenia. The third mechanism is that they express genes. So gene expression is an important part in this condition that are related to neutrophil migration, okay? So when you finally get neutrophils in the peripheral blood, they have gene expression that involves neutrophil migration. So the neutrophils, rather than when they finally get into the peripheral blood staying there, they then migrate back into the organs. 
okay? So they've got a double hit thing. So point two and point three are related. So point two was they never go into the peripheral blood in the first place. They tend to collect in different organs. The third point is if they finally get into the peripheral blood, they go back into those organs. Four, they have a defect in the release of their mature neutrophils. So they don't release segmented neutrophils from the bone marrow. Okay, so you finally go through that process of saying, okay, we start off with a myeloblast. Okay, and we go all the way to a segmented neutrophil that's a mature neutrophil. Okay, it's segmented, it's got dark chromatin. Okay, it's ready to go. And then you finally get to that point, which is a point which you think finally we've solved the problem. And then they don't want to release from the bone marrow, so they get contained in the bone marrow. And then you have got then number five, which is increased neutrophil margination. So margination is then when they finally got them in the peripheral blood, they like to bind to the wall and don't like to come away from the wall. So if you think about this, benign familial neutropenia for me is neutrophils that just don't want to go in the blood and they find different ways as in number one. Okay, we're going to go through this one last time. Number one, because the most important point in this podcast, they have a disturbance of pro-inflammatory cytokines. So the neutrophils stay in the bone marrow and don't do the normal stress response that you and I would do. And the neutrophils normally, when they're subject to cytokines or inflammatory mediators, go from the bone marrow to the peripheral blood. They don't do that. The second thing is they like to go into the gut, the spleen and the skin and not the blood. So therefore you have neutropenia because the neutrophils are there. They're just not in the blood. Number three, when they finally get into the blood, they egress. Okay, so they like to go back into those organs. Number four, when you finally go through hematopoiesis and you go from a pluripotent stem cell and then you go into a common myeloid precursor and then you go into a myeloblast and then promyelocyte, myelocyte, finally a segmented neutrophil. The segmented neutrophils don't want to be released from the bone marrow and you get increased margination. So when you've got them in the peripheral blood, they tend to stick to the endothelial wall and not in the, the central lumen of the blood vessel. So these are the five things I want you to remember before, because actually, if you know these main mechanisms, you can explain neutropenia better. So the way that we look at neutropenia is acquired or congenital. So your acquired neutropenias, as you imagine, are not inherited. They're something you develop throughout your lifetime. So what these tend to have in common is they all cause shortening of your neutrophil lifespan. That's normally seven to 10 days, normally reduced in acquired neutropenias. You get destruction or increased consumption of neutrophils and often can be a pause late in your hematopoiesis. So your metamyelocyte, which is definitely getting towards a segmented neutrophil, you can have a pause in development there and therefore you get neutrophils not becoming mature segmented neutrophils. The risk of development of infection is much lower in acquired neutropenia because actually your bone marrow is still working. You've just got a problem often with um, destruction or consumption of these neutrophils. Acquired neutropenias 
can be related to infection, medications, it can be autoimmune, um, and we'll talk about these things now. So infection related to neutropenia, so the first consideration when you're confronted with a patient with neutropenia is to think about ethnicity. So have they got benign familial neutropenia? Have they had a full blood count done before elective surgery? No one's suspecting they're neutropenic, but their neutrophil count comes down low. Have they got benign familial neutropenia? Some people estimate 15 to 20% of people who are of African or um, Arab descent can have low neutrophil counts. So it's quite common. So you're looking at a yield as potentially uh, one in six, one in five, potentially. Viruses such as varicella, uh, measles virus, rubella, along with other ones, um, can cause it. So if you had a child who had an erythematous macular rash beginning on the face and spreading down the body and coplic spots on the buccal mucosa, what might the cause of this patient's neutropenia be? And the answer would be that is a description of measles. So that patient might have neutropenia because of the measles virus. You've got another patient who has bright red cheeks and as the facial rash fades over one to four days, a symmetrical rash appears on the trunk and on the arms. So that would be erythema infectiosum or that would be parvovirus or slap cheek rash. So parvovirus B19. So these are some of the things that you might be thinking about in that case. So parvovirus can cause um, aplastic anemia. So it can lead to increased destruction of erythroid precursors. So it can actually drop your haemoglobin as well. It can less commonly cause you to have neutropenia. So if we had, let's say, a patient who had a sore throat, which failed to improve, um, and actually gets worse over a few days. They've got tiredness, muscle aches, chills, doesn't want to eat at all. They've got, let's just say, they've got a non-specific rash after they're given ampicillin or amoxicillin. And yeah, so they've got pharyngitis. They might have some petechiae on their soft um, palate. We might be thinking this patient has got glandular fever. So glandular fever tends to give you a pharyngitis, gives you a fever in up to 90% of patients. And one of the things you're thinking about is infectious mononucleosis or glandular fever, which is caused by Epstein-Barr. It's worth remembering that these patients have the triad of fever, lymphadenopathy and sore throat. And actually the lymphadenopathy can be in the cervical chain it can even be auxiliary or inguinal. So certainly if someone's got inguinal lymph nodes um, with lymphadenopathy there or elsewhere, with pharyngitis and fever, you want to think about glandular fever. So another thing that can cause you to be neutropenic, if you think about this case, is you have got a patient with fever, headache, malaise and jaundice. They have uh, recently been, let's say, to Africa etc. And they've also maybe got some diarrhea. What would we be thinking? So in that case, we'd be thinking of hepatitis A, which 
The method of transmission of hepatitis A is through ingestion. Hep things like hepatitis C tend to be parenteral and tends to be chronic. And that's often how I remember it. So hep C is chronic. HIV is another thing that can cause it, which is the production of anti-neutrophil antibodies and hypersplenism. So we clearly know that neutrophils accumulate in the spleen. So if you've got hypersplenism, we can get the accumulation of neutrophils in the spleen, but also the spleen destroys neutrophils. So you've got two mechanisms. So the hypersplenism that you can get in HIV, you'll get neutrophils becoming accumulated in the spleen and destructive. Medications, you can get bone marrow suppression with quite a few different medications, things like chemotherapy, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, anti-thyroid drugs. The one that people like in exams is clozapine, which is an antipsychotic that can give you agranulocytosis. So certainly if someone's on a medication like clozapine and develops a sore throat, the answer in exams is always to stop the medication because in a lot of cases when you've got um, neutropenia related to medications, it tends to improve in about 10 days when you stop the medication. So that's often the first thing that we do. So a case report that I saw a few years back was actually a 53-year-old man with rheumatoid arthritis who was on naproxen, 500 milligrams twice a day, and was also on um, the DMOD, so disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drug, luflonamide. And the patient actually came and had routine bloods done and his neutrophil count was 2.2. So in adults, you're looking at between 4.5 and 10 being normal and everything else was fine. So actually his haemoglobin and his thrombocytes were all fine. And they actually thought that his luflunamide was the cause of his neutropenia. They thought it was a disease modifying drug. So actually we started on methotrexate and was given some folic acid. They thought of the potentially, you know, folic acid deficiency can give you a neutropenia. So they did all that kind of stuff and they continued the naproxen and lo and behold, they looked at it and they went, it's not getting better. So they stopped his naproxen and the white cell count normalized. So remember to check the medications people on if they have a neutropenia. Autoimmune neutropenia is a chronic neutropenia and this is because you produce antibodies against your neutrophils. Okay, it can be primary or it can be secondary. So primary autoimmune neutropenia is, will give you a normal bone marrow. Okay, if you were to measure their neutrophil autoantibodies, they will be positive and you tend to pop them on cotramoxazole prophylaxis. Secondary autoimmune neutropenia, I've only put in here because of this condition that people love asking in exams. So if any patient has got a anemia, they've got a positive um, DAT, which is um, a direct um, a direct Coombs test, basically. So if someone's got a direct Coombs test or a direct antiglobulin test, and they've got a low platelet count, they've got Evans syndrome. So it's worth a Google on your phone. So Evans syndrome is an immune cause or an autoimmune cause of neutropenia. 
My name for Evans syndrome that helps me remember it and is used by some haematology journals is immune pancytopenia. So it's an immune cause of potentially in some cases your haemoglobin, white cell count and your platelets going down. So if you have got an autoimmune hemolytic anemia, so that's hemolytic anemia, which is a low haemoglobin, an increased bilirubin and an increased reticulocyte count, the triad of hemolytic anemia, what makes it autoimmune is a positive direct Coombs test. You have all of that with a low platelet count. You've got Evans syndrome. Okay, so that's really important. Evans syndrome can cause your neutrophil count to go down less commonly. But I've mentioned it here because if you've got an autoimmune hemolytic anemia plus thrombocytopenia, the answer in an exam is Evans syndrome. You've then got this thing which is a fascinating condition, which is called isoimmune neonatal neutropenia. Forget that term. It's the neutrophil equivalent of hemolytic disease of the newborn. So I've done a podcast on hemolytic disease of the newborn. So what happens in hemolytic disease of the newborn is you produce, uh, mum produces antibodies against baby's red cells. You disrupt baby's red cells and you get hemolysis. What happens in this condition is you get placental transfer of antibodies against neutrophils okay so that's what causes it i'm not going to say anything more about it because this podcast is about principles and what you might be thinking about so that would affect neonates rather than older children so one of the things that's become increasingly common is newborn babies of mums that have got hypertension have lower neutrophil counts some studies actually say that babies of hypertensive mothers 50% of them have low neutrophil counts. And obviously, mums that have got hypertension can have HELP syndrome. They can have preeclampsia. They can have had pre-existing hypertension before the birth. So this is a big area of research because possibly need to know about it for the future. So different mechanisms with this, okay, potentially thinking that The placenta generates certain chemicals that affect the interaction between your neutrophils and the lining of the blood vessel wall, the endothelium. So this is the bit that I think is really important to remember is that they can have hyperadhesiveness. What that means is the neutrophils stick to the vessel wall and don't like going into the blood. So that's why they're neutropenic. The neutrophils are there, they're just stuck to the vessel wall rather than being in the in the blood. Okay. We also know that we have it. We I talked about right at the beginning, there's lots of molecules that affect your adhesion to the vessel wall. And what we know is that these children of um, mothers with hypertension is that these adhesive molecules are expressed less, uh, expressed more. Sorry, I do apologize. So we get the neutrophils that are stuck, okay, just stuck to the vessel wall and can't go out. The final thing I want to say is that we found that interleukin levels, which are really important in neutrophil chemotaxis, which is attracting the neutrophils to where they need to be, are significantly lower. So interleukin-8 is the one that they study, but it's significantly lower in mothers with preeclampsia. So regardless of whether they were neutropenic or not, 
they were significantly lower, massively reducing interleukins. So not only have they got the problem where they've got neutrophils that like to stick to the vessel wall, they've got neutrophils that don't want to um, go anywhere. So they're not cytokine driven. So that takes us back to our benign familial neutropenia. And I said, if you remember the five mechanisms for that one, and remember just that for today, that'll help you understand the other conditions. So we know as well, if a neonate becomes really unwell, even things like respiratory distress syndrome, they will have increased margination. So the neutrophils just stay on the vessel wall. So these are all things to think about. Margination is really important. So we've mentioned it a few times. I'm going to make an attempt to clarify it. So if you have got, in this case, for example, increased vascular permeability. So let's say in this case, lots of different causes, but let's say, for example, uh, you've got sepsis, something. Some patients, neutrophils will, you know, just get to where they need to be. Other ones will bind to the vessel wall and rest. So it's when they rest on the vessel wall and don't continue rolling and moving um, and going through your pericytes into your tissue, which is what they're supposed to do, when neutrophils stop where, uh, where they want to and don't continue, that's called margination. So margination is when neutrophils stop. And margination is an issue because it's a potential mechanism for neutropenia in a lot of patients. Remember that folic acid and B12 deficiency are really important chemicals for uh, hemoglobin synthesis, and they're really important for uh, hematopoiesis and myelopoiesis, so the production of, um, of neutrophils. So folic acid and B12 are often two really important tests to do in the workup of patients that have got reduced anything. So if you're anemic, you'll get a folic acid and a B12. If you're neutropenic, you will often get the same because they're easily correctable causes of um, neutropenia and anemia. Okay, so we've covered acquired cases, okay, and we're now going to talk about congenital neutropenia. So congenital neutropenia often presents with recurrent infections and tends to be chronic um, so it won't tend to resolve spontaneously. Kostman syndrome that's been around for over 60 years now. Severe bacterial infections from early life. So certainly if a neonate is having a lot of infections, it's one of the things that you think about. It's a mutation in the neutrophil elastase gene. And we've talked about neutrophil elastase before. Does anyone remember what condition we talked about neutrophil elastase? We did it in our genetics talks when we talked about alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency because alpha-1 antitrypsin is the, the thing, the bodyguard, the thing that keeps neutrophil elastase in check. And we said that if alpha-1 antitrypsin is deficient, neutrophil elastase does what it wants. And it basically does that by damaging the liver and damaging the lungs. So neutrophil elastase has got a secondary function. We said the first thing it is, it's a proteolytic enzyme, so it breaks things down, uh, which it normally does really, really well. But um, unfortunately, in this case, it, um, in alpha-1 antitrypsin, it destroys the wrong things. The second thing neutrophil elastase does is it's involved in maturation. So it's actually one of the important things that results in you, your neutrophils developing or maturing from a promyelocyte to a myelocyte. And we said 
you've got it. You've got a myeloblast, then a promyelocyte, myelocyte, and then finally a segmented neutrophil right at the end. So you have a pause to your development. So you your neutrophil production um, goes down. So with this condition, a hundred percent of cases of Kostman syndrome present in the first six months, and ninety five percent of them respond really well to granulite colony stimulating factor. Okay, so GCSF. Cyclic neutropenia is something that can give you, quite predictably, every 21 days you'll get an attack. And it'll give you fever, it can give you oral ulcers that tend to be quite painful, and you get recurrent infections. It's got genetic components, so it's autosomal dominant inherited, and it's a problem with the same gene, neutrophil elastase. And the mutation is slightly different in this case and actually causes your neutrophil precursors to die, so therefore you don't produce enough uh, neutrophils. And again, treated with GCSF. So granulocyte colony stimulating factor. And it stimulates your bone marrow to produce granulocytes that are basophils, eosinophils, and neutrophils. And it's involved in the maturation of these as well. The second thing I was going to say, because it presents so differently, and therefore great for exams, Schwachmann-Diamond syndrome. So this presents in infancy, sort of so recessive. And the reason this stands out from the rest of is because you get exocrine pancreatic failure. So... If you have got steatorrhea and neutropenia, the diagnosis is Schwachmann-Diamond syndrome. Okay, it can give other things like short stature, problems with development, um, skeletal problems, and obviously because it causes neutropenia, you get hematology involvement. The definitive management is bone marrow transplant, but steatorrhea and neutropenia is Schwachmann-Diamond syndrome for exams. Okay, other rare and wonderful things you can read about. Um, the final thing that I'm going to talk about is I'm going to talk about there's some metabolic conditions so you, with your glycogen storage disease 1b, which is a problem with glucose 6-phosphatase translocase deficiency. You can get low uh, neutrophils. Don't remember it. It's not important. Methylmalonic aciduria, which is covered in our organic acidemia podcast, is another thing that can give you neutropenia. So... If we have got a patient with neutropenia, what would we do? Okay, so if their previous neutrophil count was normal, we would say this is congenital. Okay, very simple. If they've got a previous neutrophil count on the system and the previous neutrophil count was abnormal, we would think, what is it? So, okay, if they have got an abnormal phenotype, so to look at them, okay, if they had growth failure, if they had um, skeletal abnormalities, they had problems with their bones, if they had abnormal facies, we might think has this person got something like Fanconi anemia. If they've got problem with certain structures like their hair or problems, we might think they've got something like hair cartilage syndrome. Schwachmann-Diamond syndrome, we've talked about this, um, if they had pancreatic insufficiencies, so if they had fatty stools or steatorrhea. If their phenotype was normal, we would think, right, it, have they got recurrent infections? Yes. Kostman syndrome, okay, would be the thing that we'd be thinking about. Or potentially cyclic neutropenia if it happened every 21 days or so. If they had a normal phenotype, their previous neutrophil count was abnormal, 
and they don't get recurrent infections, we'd be looking at the two conditions we talked about in the beginning, chronic benign neutropenia or familial benign neutropenia. And we talked about the five mechanisms that cause familial benign neutropenia. If their previous neutrophil count was normal, we would be thinking this is probably acquired. So if we think it's acquired, we've got two things. Have they got leukemia? Okay, which we haven't talked about today, but we've been talking about the more weird and wonderful things. Have they got a viral infection that's caused it? These are some of our considerations. If there isn't an underlying cause, we would probably say, is it an immune cause or is it drug related? Okay. The final bit of today to kind of sum it all up together is we're going to talk for about a minute about neutropenia. So neutropenia can also be a problem that we talked about today is that the neutrophils are adhered to the vascular wall or are hiding or residing in the spleen and bone marrow. So we can get different stress chemicals that can cause them to come out. So the two that I think are really important is you can give them adrenaline. So adrenaline is fantastic at causing your neutrophils to get out of the vascular wall and into the blood. So for example, if you gave, if you measured someone's neutrophil count, you gave them adrenaline and their neutrophil count went up. If they were neutropenic to begin with and you gave them adrenaline and it went up, you would say potentially we've got someone here that they've got neutrophils, they're just in uh, the vascular wall. You can also use cortisol, but that is more to test bone marrow. So if you think you've got neutrophils that are residing in the bone marrow, you can give them cortisol, hydrocortisone, and if their neutrophil count goes up, okay, we would potentially say, oh, okay, what's happened is your neutrophils are residing in the bone marrow and just not in the peripheral blood. So this has been a look at neutropenia. So you've got lots of things that you can think about potentially about causing it. We know that they can be acquired or congenital. Okay. The main thing I want you to take from today is that the first thing you think about when you've got someone with a neutropenia is you think about infection and you think about medications. Okay. Infections, medications. Okay. And probably the third thing is then ethnicity. Okay. So infections, medications, ethnicity. Okay. Which I think is the main way that I would tend to look at it. So have they got an infection? Because we know infections can cause neutropenia. Are they on medications such as clozapine or as we said, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs? Check that there's a side effect in the medications they're on is not neutropenia. And then think about the ethnicity. Think about uh, benign familial neutropenia. Okay. And we talked about the mechanisms of that. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, feel free to suggest any other topics you'd like to learn about. Thank you.